Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you had seven minutes to spare in a day, what would you do? Actually, first, before you answer that question, take a moment and look at the time. Remember it. So if you had seven minutes, would you maybe go for a quick walk around the block to get some fresh air? Catch up on your Instagram or Twitter feeds? Or maybe you would make yourself a hot cup of coffee to enjoy outdoors. Seven minutes doesn't sound like a lot of time, but if you think about it, you can get a lot done. Seven minutes can even change a life. And in 2018, seven minutes changed a city forever. A man driving a white rental van went on a deadly rampage on one of the most prominent streets in Toronto. 11 people were killed, 16 others injured. And as word spread of the attack, Toronto descended into darkness, grief, and sadness. I kept apologizing to him for being careless crossing the street. And he goes, no, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. And he'd tell me, and I'd go, no, it's not possible. No, that's not happening. That wouldn't work. That wouldn't happen. It wouldn't. And he goes, yeah, it did. I'm Erica Vela, a journalist with Global News. Today, I bring you part one of what happened to Seven Minutes of Terror, the Toronto van attack. Before we get too far into this episode, I wanted to address something that's come up time and time again while I work on this story and others like it. People often ask, do you name the suspect? As a news organization, our editorial team has used the name in our coverage as it's necessary for our reporting. For this podcast, you won't hear me say his name. I will not give the killer the notoriety he sought when he committed this heinous act. And although you will hear some of our interview subjects name the killer, we've decided to omit his name during this series. April 23rd, 2018. It was a beautiful spring day. The kind of day winter-weary Torontonians look forward to every year. The sun was shining, and you could walk outside in a t-shirt as the first signs of life sprouted from nearby gardens and trees. That day, I was in the Global News newsroom working on a story when information started to trickle in. Pedestrians had been struck in the Young and Finch area. That was my experience. But I wanted to hear from Kathy Riddell, a longtime resident of the area. When we spoke, it was a beautiful spring day. In fact, it was very similar to April 23rd, 2018. She told me about the area, which has bloomed from a suburban neighborhood and has grown very quickly into a great option for city lovers who appreciate condo living at lower prices. For Kathy Riddell, the Young and Finch area is packed with childhood memories. Her family moved to Elmwood Avenue in 1954, and she's continued to live in the area since then. This is home. Overall, it's a a safe area. I know the area very well. I've got friends in the area. I know where all the stores are. I know where all the restaurants are. I mean, it's just, it's home. What can I say? It's where I belong. Four years ago, Kathy was eager to be outside and enjoy the nice weather. 
She had spent the previous six months recovering from knee replacement surgery. But on April 23rd, she had a list full of errands she wanted to get through. I had to go to the bank. I was going to go to Shoppers Drug Mart. I was heading down to the library at the Civic Center. And it was a beautiful day. It was like the first nice day of the year. Just gorgeous, sunny, warm. Everybody was out on the street. You just sort of felt alive for the first time in months. So, you know what? I was quite happy to be out there. I was going to go to the library, pick up a book, and then go, go to sit in the park and just enjoy the day and just celebrate it. You know what? It was just gorgeous. It was around lunchtime, and Young Street was buzzing with people sitting outside enjoying a coffee or sandwich in the sun. Kathy was walking south on Young Street just before 1.30 p.m. Well, you know what? You're on Young Street, so the last thing you're expecting is somebody to be cruising down the sidewalk. I mean, the worst I ever thought would come down the sidewalk would be a kid on a bike who was a little bit out of control or something, you know, like a young kid. Never dreamt that a vehicle would be cruising down the street looking for victims. It just never, never even entered It just wasn't there. It just could never have happened until it did. Kathy Riddell's world went dark, but around her, chaos reigned. At 1.27 p.m., the first call came into 911. A white rental vehicle mounted the sidewalk at the southwest corner intersection of Young and Finch. Witnesses watched in horror as it struck pedestrians. Anybody in his path, they were flying in the air. He just kept going down one by one, one by one. Oh my God, wow. I can't believe I saw this. This is crazy. I ran, because everyone was running, so I only saw the first lady get hit. The van continued to travel south along Young Street for several blocks, hitting innocent pedestrians. At one point, the van turned west off of Young and drove down Beecroft Road. Then it crossed Shepherd, which is another very busy street. At Points Avenue, the van came to a halt. The driver was arrested at 1.34 p.m., seven minutes after the first call to 911. It was caught on camera, but the 2.2-kilometer trip along Young Street left a trail of devastation. Ten people were killed, 16 others injured. On April 23, 2018, Inspector Graham Gibson was on call as a detective sergeant for the Toronto Police Homicide Squad. And I started to hear some conversations that there was some people injured in the Young and Finch area. And some of the third-hand information was that a potential uh, elderly person had a... um, medical issue, and their vehicle had struck some people. Let's pause for a second. Remember when I told you to look at the time at the beginning of the episode? Well, it's been seven minutes. That's how long it took for one man to cause all that devastation. On the day of the attack, Inspector Graham Gibson was back at the office awaiting further information on what was unfolding on Young Street. So that was just the initial third-party information, but I decided to stick around and kind of see what was, what was coming in. And pretty much uh, within 
I don't know, maybe 15 minutes, it was determined that it was actually uh, somebody driving a vehicle who had struck several pedestrians. And right off the bat, it looked like it was intentional. So uh, I got in my, my police car unmarked and started to head up to the scene uh, to start the investigation. On the drive over, Gibson's mind anticipated what he would find. So this one is, uh, it's overwhelming because I didn't know at the time how many victims. You're only getting piecemeal information. So I didn't know how many people had died because that information wasn't known yet. People were being transported to the hospital and that isn't known yet. I knew there was a lot of people who were injured, a lot of people potentially deceased. With so many unknowns, Gibson leaned on experience to prepare. You're still going to have a crime scene. You're still going to treat it the exact same way but you're just going to make things bigger and you're going to think bigger. And you also have to take into account, um, because it's such a big scene, you're going to have incident management system taking place. So you're going to have officers who are dealing with the scene and the incident. And I, my, my dealing is going to be the crime scene, the homicide, and uh, major case management, how that case is going to be managed. When he arrived at the scene, the magnitude of devastation was something he had never experienced before. What he saw that day had tremendous impact on him. But you're trying not to show it because I think when you show up as a member of Homicide, the other officers and members are looking at you to kind of bring some control to that scene. So although you may feel it inside, and I certainly did, you try to maintain your composure and focus on what your, what your tasks are. And, that, and that's what you have to do. With this one, I knew that the accused had been arrested. So that takes a huge chunk off my plate. So I turned my mind towards obviously securing the scene, seeing what resources I have to help me gather evidence. And uh, my primary concern at the time was those people that had been injured, making sure we knew where they were, which hospitals, that there was officers at those hospitals that can relay information to us as to what kind of injuries we're dealing with. And uh, one of our main goals was to get those people off the sidewalks and street. But, uh, you know, it's a horrible thing to have to see and for the public to see. So... That was the primary goal. As Inspector Graham Gibson worked the scene, my colleague Catherine McDonald was paying close attention to what was unfolding on Young Street. Catherine is a crime reporter with Global Toronto with over 20 years of experience and has covered many high-profile cases like Paul Bernardo, Carla Homolka, and Bruce MacArthur. One of the things that makes being a crime reporter different than just a general assignment reporter is that you can build relationships with not just police officers, but also with victims. And for me, you know, meeting a family at the beginning of a case, you know, building that relationship and going with them to the trial and and the sentencing, you build trust, you you build a sense of they feel that you've taken an interest in the case and that you're not just dipping in and out because you've been assigned a story. For me, it's the role of crime reporter has become an advocate for victims where I feel like I can help people who have been torn apart by terrible crimes. I can help them navigate through the justice system, which is often very difficult for for families uh, of victims to, you know, to go to court and to have to testify and give victim impact statements. You know, for many of these families, there is no justice, but I can at least give them some comfort knowing that I've been there with them from the beginning. But the van attack was something she had never seen before. This was a one-day event where 10 people were killed in a matter of, you know, a few minutes. And it was so terribly shocking 
and violent and disturbing. They had no way of protecting themselves. They were vulnerable pedestrians. And it seemed like there was a disproportionate number of women. Catherine covered the attack from the beginning, so I got her to walk me through the minutes, hours, and days that followed. I think the other part of the story that was really big and that we dissected was the takedown, which was done by an officer from 32 Division. In the video, you hear the police officer, Constable Ken Lam, yelling at the driver. He repeatedly shouts orders at the driver. Then there's a verbal exchange between the two men. At one point, the driver approaches Constable Lamb while holding an unidentified object in his hand. It's like he was holding a gun. But instead, it was a wallet. Constable Lamb drops his gun and approaches the driver who throws the wallet on the ground. He then puts his hands up and lies on the ground, and Constable Lamb makes the arrest. When you see that video, you'll see that Mr. Manassian was very agitated and he was trying to, he was moving his arms and showing his hands. I think he had his wallet in his hand at some point, making him look like he was armed, uh, pointing his hand at the officer. The officer could very easily have thought that a weapon was being produced, but, you know, we have good training and we're trained to react when we see a weapon. And, you know, I can only surmise that the uh, constable knew that it wasn't a weapon and he was able to effect that arrest without causing any injury to uh, Mr. Manassian, despite the action Mr. Manassian wanted the officer to take. That's Inspector Graham Gibson. And you might be wondering, why does the arrest matter in this story? Here again is Catherine McDonald to explain. It's widely believed that he wanted to die that day that he wanted to um, be a martyr and he wanted, you know, he thought he was going to die. It could have ended so differently where we wouldn't have had answers. You know, at least we have some insight into why he did this, whether or not, you know, which theory you believe is up to you. But we at least have some insight. And had he been killed that day, we would never have known why. A few days after the van attack, Deputy Police Chief Peter Yuen spoke about Constable Lamb and the arrest of the driver. And he wants to make sure that everyone, everyone understands he, he was not a hero. He was merely doing a job. With the driver in custody, investigators tried to piece together what exactly unfolded on one of the busiest streets in Toronto. Meanwhile, those touched by the terror, like Kathy Riddell, had no idea what happened to them. I was sort of in and out a little bit. Um, And I apparently talked to people, and I don't remember any of that. I talked to my family doctor in the hospital. I don't remember that. I don't actually remember anything for maybe a couple of weeks. That doesn't mean I was unconscious for two weeks. I I was apparently alert. (laughs) I just don't remember any of it. So somehow my mind blocked it all out. Kathy said her brother tried to explain what had happened. And I kept apologizing to him for being careless crossing the street. And he goes, no, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. And he'd tell me. And I'd go, no, it's not possible. No, that's not happening. That wouldn't work. That wouldn't happen. It wouldn't. And he goes, yeah, it did. At the time, she couldn't believe anyone could commit such horrors. I just couldn't believe that it could happen in this city. I couldn't believe that anybody could do that to total strangers. I mean, it was... It was such a shock that my mind just refused to accept the fact that it happened. 
I just kept thinking, yeah, I was careless crossing young and I got what I deserved, I guess. Well, whatever. You know, it's, it's so out of the realm of realism to a normal person that it's really hard to comprehend when you're in a hospital and someone tells you that happened. That shock and utter disbelief was felt by people all over the city. But a few hours after the attack, crime reporter Catherine McDonald was able to learn more about the man responsible. I was sent a Facebook post from the suspect, and I confirmed that it was from him, and I tweeted that out. And, you know, putting that tweet on social media, I had to be pretty confident that it was, it was in fact, from the accused. And um, it went viral. The Facebook post said the driver in the attack called himself a private recruit and made reference to the anonymous online forum 4chan. The post talks about how the incel rebellion to overthrow all the Chads and Stacys has begun. It also praised the killer of a U.S. mass killing in Isla Vista, California. In that 2014 attack, the perpetrator killed six people and injured 14 in a stabbing and shooting spree before he turned the gun on himself. But years later, when Catherine read the Toronto killer's post for the first time, she was confused. I'd never heard of involuntary celibate. I didn't know what it meant. I had to Google the name um, Elliot Roger. And that was a big part of the story was explaining to people, what does that mean, incel movement? And, um, you know, the infantry, there was a reference to his... Uh, He'd been a member of in the infantry and trying to dissect what that what that Facebook post was all about. Understanding the incel ideology and references in that post would be the key to understanding the attacker's motives. The driver was in police custody and in a small room when a detective interviewed him. Hello. Hi, how are you? Doing good, how are you? Good, good. Did you drink water? Sure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. How are you feeling? Feeling good? You're feeling okay? My name's Rob Thomas. It was in this interview police began to unravel the motive and find out more about the online subculture with a very dangerous side that can be found on the dark web. More on that next time on Global News What Happened To. Thank you for joining me this week. I want to take a moment to remember the victims who died or who were injured on April 23, 2018, and the countless others who feel the pain from that day. Mary Elizabeth Forsyth, Ranuka Amarsinga, Anne Marie Domenko, Munir Najjar, Sohee Chung, Chul Ming Kang, Dorothy Sewell, Andrea Braddon, Jihan Kim, Geraldine Brady, and Amaresh Tesfamariam. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producers are Rosalind Kafour and Rob Johnson. Thanks goes to Global News crime reporter Catherine McDonald. Also, a special thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow our show and bring you more incredible stories. 
You can also help us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for new stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>